Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. Our special guest today is Andrew Cook, General Counsel at the global esports brand Fnatic. He's the former General Counsel and Head of Strategy for Flash Entertainment in Abu Dhabi, where he supported in delivering live events to more than 8 million people, from sponsorship activation through to global football tournaments. In this interview, Andrew discusses the history of Fnatic, the exciting partnership between Fnatic and UNICEF, managing risk in the fast growth esports sector, the duty of Cairo to esports participants, the evolution of esports media rights, the role that an in-house lawyer can play for organisations in esports, and more importantly, or as importantly, how lawyers can find meaningful purpose in their work. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Andrew is full of wisdom and insights and takes a different approach, I think, to how lawyers should operate and work within the legal sector. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll find it refreshing challenging and exciting well I hope you do I know I did um, it was a real pleasure and privilege to get to interview Andrew and I thank him for his time remember if you like what we do if you enjoy the work of law in sport if you enjoy the show the podcast please do take the time to share this with other people and tell people what you enjoyed about it it makes a huge difference to us it makes a big difference to me personally but it makes a real big difference to our organization it means we can continue to do what we do and do it well more importantly, I guess, above all of that, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, wherever you are in the world, hope you're having a wonderful day. Hope you enjoy the show. I hope you take a lot from it. And thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. We really do appreciate it. I hope you enjoy the show. So I'm here in the London headquarters of Fnatic, uh, the esports team. Many of you will be familiar with. Maybe, maybe you've even got some of their merchandise, or you've been watching their their, their stream on Twitch. I'm joined today by Andrew Cook. Andrew, uh, thanks for taking the time out to speak to me. Absolute pleasure, Sean. Um, I'm delighted to get to speak with you because we've had loads of private conversations for hours and hours on end about a whole bunch of different things. And I'm late, excited. late night conversations. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> uh, um, but a whole bunch of different things about uh, since you joined the team, about the state of the esports industry, about the legal profession, and I hope we can touch on a whole host of different issues if we've got time. But the one of the things I really wanted to talk about and the, what really sparked this was um, a very exciting, I think, initiative between Fnatic and UNICEF. Uh, maybe you would like to just dis- 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 discuss that, tell us about how that came about, what the deal entails, and why it's significant. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. Um, uh, some listeners might know that I was based in the Middle East for a very long time, and um, Law and Sport is a wonderful resource for people who are not based in a huge market like Man. London. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think f- sort of using a resource like that to be able to sort of stay connected into what's happening in the industry is really vital if you're not in one of those hubs for um, sports law per se. Um, so, yeah, it's delighted, delighted to be able to contribute in any way. Um, with regards to UNICEF, um, that came about as really a, a conversation with uh, our streaming team. So one of the things, interesting things about esports is it's not just about sports performance. Um, because of the nature of the games, which 
which are really in many ways more competitors to social media than they are sort of traditional uh, play pursuits, if you like. Uh, because of the nature of the games, you, we're at this intersection of culture and, and influencers and, and sport and so on. Um, what that means is a lot of our gaming personalities um, are also tremendously influential streaming celebrities. Um, UNICEF is looking to sort of get into that world really and change the nature of its conversation with young people because it fundamentally it is a charity that is, that is there to support the interests of children worldwide. And they saw uh, the influence that our, our sort of streaming team has as being a way to do that. Um, we, a couple of months ago, signed uh, Tex. Um, as I've said before, he's not a cowboy. Uh, his name's Donovan Hunt. He's from Wolverhampton. He happens to be the best FIFA player in the world. What really uh, great young man, fantastic um, future ahead of him and, and really great for Fnatic to be able to support somebody like that as they sort of really and we may come onto this as they start to really realize their value, uh, the value of the talent they have. Um, so Tex is going to be playing with Marcus Rashford of Manchester United um, on a stream this afternoon. And uh, I mean, the, the sort of initial goal, if you like, the basic goal of that is to raise money for UNICEF uh, to spend on, on, on what are called safe spaces in schools. So areas where uh, kids can go and play and, and particularly in developing countries, but also here in the UK. Um, but there's also a, a, a much more interesting, in my view, um, element to it, um, which is about toxicity in uh, sport and uh, about managing online culture and really tackling some of the things that at the most basic level might just prevent somebody from, uh, from gaming or perhaps enjoying their gaming experience. For example, you know, I, I play um, PUBG Mobile, for example, and uh, I know myself that sometimes when you get on the... Uh, onto that game, you have to wear headphones when you're playing it, um, if you're going to play it effectively anyway. And some of the stuff that comes through on the stream is sometimes pretty pretty lively. Um, so I turn the headphones off so you don't fully get into the game. And I think that's really what we're trying to tackle. Ways to, you know, things that stop people gaming, things that stop people joining this world that we are sort of, I think of ourselves as being forerunners in. That's what it's all about. So, so this is um, this, so this partnership is initially just uh, looks like it's, you're just doing the fundraising and awareness. How do you see this evolving? Um, well, I think one of the interesting things about or when I certainly when I landed in um, in in Fnatic, which wasn't that long ago, um, five six months now, um, I came from a world of music and sport, which obviously you know they, they were obviously speaking in very general terms, they're well developed industries, right? and how they manage risks and um, how risk profiling in events sort of plays out and uh, what you do, uh, you know, the sort of HSE standards around events and all that kind of stuff is very well established and there, there is something approximate. So that's health and safety. Yeah, pardon me, yeah. There's something approximate, thank you. That's something approximating a kind of a global standard in, in, in some of those things. So really then it's just a matter of implementation and audit more or less. If you're looking at this at a kind of like a enterprise risk management level or a holistic risk management level, um, one of the things that I did when I came in was build out a basic risk register. Um, because I think for all, there's there's many ways, I suppose, in which the in-house skill set is kind of carved off from the private practice skill set. But one of them, I think, is a, around looking at risk in a holistic way. So in, in both my former job and, and, and in this one, there's been an education element to it in terms of what uh, in-house clients expect from in-house counsel. 
And I'd say at one end of the spectrum, you have the kind of people who look at this as a purely administrative function, like that, you know, I go to the legal department to get paperwork, right? And then there's people who understand that how we manage risk as an organization requires a kind of like a full team, full scope effort. So a lot of it is just sitting there and understanding what the risks are, how we control them, what the residual risk is then. This is basic kind of enterprise risk management stuff. Anyway, as part of conducting that exercise, one of the things that we noted were, was that the, there were controls around um, what we safeguarding issues, um, but I wouldn't say that the sort of the duty of care was really fully understood. Um, and that's entirely to be expected because gaming or esports is an uh, industry that has been built predominantly by gamers. As well, say the synergy with sport. Right. You've got the same thing where the objective is to participate in the activity. Right. And the, uh, perform that activity. Right. And who do you get administering it? Right. You get former sports people. Right. And again, no criticism there. I mean, fundamentally, I, I, I don't. I don't live and breathe the digital world in the way that, you know, I've been regularly, I found myself in meetings with 22-year-old social media managers and I, do, and I have to defer to them, right, because it, they, they are speaking, they are native in a language and an environment that I am not native in, right? So you have, to, you have to be respectful of that or humble in the way in which you approach that environment and learn what you can from the people that you work with. But I think, um, you know, that... Uh, I also, I also think it's humbling to recognise, and this is one of the things I think you first learn when you move from private practice into in-house, is where legals really sit in the grand scheme of, of things, if you know what I mean. Like these guys have done. I mean, Fanatic is. I mean, as as you mentioned when in the sort of opening there, we're in this fantastic uh, headquarters office here in uh, London. We have um, gaming houses in LA, London, Belgrade, uh, Berlin, Kuala Lumpur, Tokyo. We, we're pu pulling one up in Mumbai. We're in China in a big way, um, imminently. You know, all that has happened without sort of, I would say, full force legal su legal support and some um, spotty coverage from external counsel. So, you know, be respectful of, w of where you sit in the grand scheme of things and come in with a value orientation. And part of that is to say, okay, like, look, let's look at where we are fa in, in terms of the maturity level on some of these things that will enhance and protect long-term value and risk management and enterprise risk management is one of those. So going through that exercise, you then look at, okay, so this duty of care piece, where we are in terms of, of, of managing risks of individuals interacting with people. And of course, because we're in a digital world, that extends out to effectively the entire internet, right? So then you get into this interesting intersection of um, the on online culture and what would comprise appropriate behavior in an online environment and how we then manage that. And that then brings in the question of what's authentic and what's not authentic within that space, getting tricky issues. Well, uh, I was watching the uh, uh, Riot documentary on Netflix. Right. The League of Legends uh, Riot documentary. And that was one of the big issues that, that they flagged in, in that documentary. Again, how people were saying, you know, things that would be very common in gaming, which would be like, I hope you die. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That, that, that's obviously can be very offensive to people. Right. And very upsetting. And so they started to have to create rules around that and policing. I think they've still got some way to go from what I understand. I don't, I don't know personally, but, but, but it was it seemed like at the time, anyway, a really positive step. And they were yeah. having to do that analysis that you're describing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so two, two points on that. Number one, I, I really like, I mean, we interact with Riot on a regular basis. They're a huge stakeholder, um, or they would probably say that we're a huge stakeholder in their organization. But I mean, we've won um, League of Legends titles for m many years. Um, last year, obviously represented LEC in uh, Worlds. 
um, our players are if their hype video for the for this for the season ahead was dropped yesterday, and our players feature you know prominently in that. I think Riot has started to understand uh, and really assert its 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 rights as as a major player in this space, and I accept that accountability to Riot. I mean, fundamentally, um, we are a partner to them, but those I think effective partnerships of that nature are built on understanding where the red lines are. So from the business construct perspective, let's break down the organization. So you're an esports team. How many people how many teams do you have in each competition and how many players do you have? Okay. So about eleven games, about sixty players. So I as I mentioned earlier on, we've been described as the Real Madrid of esports, but I think a better analogy is probably Barcelona, where you have a football team, a basketball team, a handball team, a, I don't know, Tillywinks team, like whatever else is on, is on the roster, they're all playing under the same colours, they're all organised under the same structure. And that and that's really the the situation. So here, you, as you mentioned, you talked about League of Legends. Um, esports statistics are um, always, always sort of raise an eyebrow a little bit. Um, the League of Legends is the, is the, is the preeminent game in esports. This is the kind of, you know, if you see esports hype reels or you see um, uh, esports represented on TV, when you have five v five on a stage and there's you know fifty thousand people in a stadium, um, that is probably League of Legends that you're watching. That's where the bulk of the money is. That's where the players are really earning. And that, 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 so, sorry to interrupt mm. on that. And that's because they've got a closed system, right? They control they everything. And again, I can't recommend enough. It was one of the guys they recommended watching the one on Netflix yes. documentary. Really go and watch it because they they made a very conscious decision to to manage everything about it, where some of the other games, I believe, have a more sort of uh, open policy, right? So let everything go and then... That's right, that's right. So it, it, it all sort of runs back to what is it that you're trying to sell, right? So Counter-Strike, for example, which is a, again, 5v5, very popular uh, game, um, a, a game in which Fnatic really sort of built its legacy or built its, um, its current story, if you like. Uh, our, our chief gaming officer is a Counter-Strike legend. Um, What's his name? His name is Patrick Satterman. He he played under the name Khan, and um, yeah, uh, it's really interesting actually when you see young Counter Strike pros coming through now. I mean, he is you know they we have people visit and they want to shake Patrick's hand, you know, and and for 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 us again, if you when you come into this industry, if you're not of the industry, right? And I readily accept that I'm not of the industry. I'm, I learn every day new stuff about what it is we do, and it's it's, it's wonderful. Um, you know, to sort of see that person that you work with on a day-to-day -day level and you're negotiating the contracts with and the programmers and, and we talk about structuring and all that kind of stuff, the, the degree of reverence in which he's held in the community is, uh, is is pretty impressive. It's great that he has his feet so squarely on the ground. Um, so, uh, yeah, Counter-Strike um, made by Valve. Valve's sort of target is to sell as many games as possible through Steam, which is its online uh, platform for game sales, kind of like an iTunes for games, if you like, um, cross-platform in the same way that iTunes is. Um, so they want to sell as many copies of Counter-Strike. So they put it into the world. You can buy it now for $10, $10 download it onto your laptop or whatever. Um, and they sort of gave it out to the world. And, um, yeah, maybe, you know, league. I mean, to organize Counter-Strike tournaments um, in response to a desire for competitive play within the team. Where, where it makes life tricky is that you never really know when you're watching Counter-Strike whether or not you're, play, you're seeing the best two teams in the world play each other. It's kind of like boxing. 
in that, in that regards, right? Yeah, you've got, you've got different exactly. bodies who are organising the competitions, and it's very difficult right. then because they can have competing interests. Um, so right, you've got your uh, sixty players in um, yeah elevenish games, yeah elevenish games, uh, and the the games have different economic models and different uh, competition structures, right? About they do, the, yeah. So that's what we just described there. Now that's only one part of your business. So now let's come on to the rest. So you've got the competitive teams. Then the other parts of the business are? Right. So um, I'd say this, this, is a, this is the part which is evolving most quickly. So our most traditional business um, is Fnatic Gear. So this is, um, I would say, hardcore gaming kit for hardcore gaming pros. Uh, keyboards, mice, mice bungees, pads. Um, and I mean, anybody who's thought about, you know, boot deals in football and those kind of things know has no knows how influential kit is, right? People want to play with what the pros play with. And in esports particularly, the performance advantage of having the right kit is substantial. Cycling. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Um, even if, I mean, yeah, mar marginal gains on things like um, height of key, right? Or whether or not you use a wired or wireless mouse or um, all, all that kind of stuff. We, You know, our, our headphone range is is expanding because mobile gaming is expanding and headphones are critical to mobile gaming um you know all that sort of stuff so so gear is um is there and, and exists and you can you know buy fanatic gear broadly that business is um is doing well i think where the where all esports teams are finding life interesting at the moment is around um this, this, this nexus of um of, of of gaming and influence and um Certainly, I would say I would say we are fully in an agency position. That's clearly not the case, and we we don't hold ourselves out as being an agency. Um, where we are, though, is we have traditionally held a quite significant portfolio of intellectual property in our players, you know, in, in our players' likenesses and so on. I think in the past that's been thrown in as part of the package. We've what we've seen definitely in the last six months is a is a change in. Um, awareness and a completely and i would say a completely appropriate change in awareness amongst the amongst the players of what that stuff is valued at so if i think back to the text negotiation he is a, so a young man he's 18 years old um but assertively aware and again completely appropriately assertively aware of the value of his rights and the types of organizations that would be interested in dealing with him because he is it because he is the best at what he does and he is involved in the england setup and he's played he he uh, he's involved in liverpool setup as well he has access to players he's in that mix so when tex streams he is talking to a very attractive audience right for uh for sort of for commercial partners um he's in the right rooms in terms of how he manages things, he's got a sensible agent. He's got sensible legal advisors, and again, that is all. I would say that transition from I'm just a gamer and I just play, all I want to do is play games kind of thing to I am a uh, media asset. You know, I am. I am. A, I've, I've described this before as the Motown change. We're out of the Motown era where you just went to Barry Gordy's studio and cut a track and. He gave you a hundred bucks, and then took the entire. Yeah, he was very grateful for it. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, we are we are firmly out of that era in esports. So, so that that is fascinating. I wonder if because there's been in football, there's been 
yesterday there was a meeting of agents in London and all this talk about the cap on, on commissions and stuff. And the one thing that I find frustrating that I tweeted about, and if you're unfortunate to follow me on Twitter, you're always seeing this, <laughs> is the education. And I think yeah. it's a big issue, an education of, of, of young players around what an agent does, what, an agent, what a representation agreement is, uh, what lawyers do, etc. And, and from what I understand, again, I'm massively outside. <laughs> like I said, I probably couldn't be more outside the esports industry. I tried to sort of dip in and play a few games and stuff like that badly. Um, but the, 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 the learning curve's too steep for me, probably. But the... Um, one thing I note from other people in the sector and what I've told was speaking to former players um, uh, is that, and, and people we've had to come and speak at the excellent people um, that have come and spoken at our conferences, is that the esports players are generally a little bit more, let's say, because of the nature of the games, a little bit more um, proactive, let's say, with understanding what their rights are, understanding what goes into the contracts, etc. As a lot of athletes, I get you know the younger generation are heavily engaged in esports. It'd be really interesting to see if that informs uh, this a mainstream sport in terms of the athlete. Yeah, well, I mean, having had a foot in sort of music and and sport in a in the, my previous role, I think it, it was always interesting to me the different way in which rights got negotiated between those two uh, industries, right? And I think. In tennis, the difference was most marked because negotiating with a with a Murray or a or a Djokovic or a Nadal was completely different to negotiating with a Serena Williams, right? Who was who was more towards that? She was sitting on the line between music and sport, those two worlds. I was uh, and the and the approach to I, I always I mean historically found uh, sports people much easier to negotiate with in the sense of if you say okay we're going to do it so we'll, so we'll, we'll pay you X. Obviously, you're playing this tournament. Um, if it's just a you know invitational or whatever, um, we need you to do this press shoot, this um, this spe special appearance. We need you to go and meet this partner. We need you, you know all that sort of stuff. None of that stuff would ever be a problem. That was part of the job. Um, I think for for musicians, it is a completely different negotiation. It is always no. We turn up, we do the show, we go home, we are completely we we have zero liabilities to you. You pay the fee under all circumstances. You know all that sort of piece. And even something like sending a social media message or any form of, of appearance was always a problem um, in the main. And, that, and, that, and, that, and I think that, and I, sorry, problem is a, is a, is a, is a loaded word, but the, uh, music artists were so much more assertive of, those of, of the value of those additional extras. If you're Rihanna and you send out a tweet to your you know, 50 million fans, right, you were fully aware of the, val of the value of that. So well, if they're not, their agents are. Oh well, yeah, yeah, and I mean that's the that, that's the job. But again, I, I have. So that's the point of having the right people around you to make sure that they, you, you know, you you're not giving away something for nothing. And you alluded this to to Tex, where he's got. You said he's you know, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's got, exactly the agent. I mean, the agent there. We have what we haven't seen before is granularity around around the various points of sort of commercial offering. So it would be a block trade, right? You can take everything. You just have to pay a little bit more, and that doesn't really work for anybody. So sorry, what I'm talking about here is, let's say we define, um, because we do in our contracts, what, what comprises the pro's IP, right? So this is likeness, signature, um, you know, uh, image, face, like everything you might think about associated with a particular professional. There's an interesting kind of negotiation um, issue here, which is like perception of value for how, how hard you have to fight for it. If you have to work for something and you get it, you value it more, all of the things being equal, right? And in the past, um, we've received those rights because they've just been thrown in as part of the deal. Now we have agents 
I'd say taking the first step, which is to at least uh, at least argue that those rights shouldn't just come across for free. Um, with Texas Agent, we saw a little bit of additional granularity in there, which again, positive step. So things like uh, what watch is he wearing, what shoes is he wearing, uh, that kind of stuff. Again, things that have been well built out in in football uh, agreements um, and so on. And, and, and again, in tennis, players come with those. So if you're negotiating with Adal, he's wearing a Richard Mille watch. He might even bring Richard Mille in as a sponsor for you and take a cut of it, you know, like all those kind of things. All that stuff's already been well negotiated out. We're starting to see brands place small bets in this space. And as that money comes in, it will drive valuation of those rights. And no doubt for you, from your from your perspective as well, if you've got someone who's more aware of their value, they're more likely to activate it and go harder. Particularly if they're getting a commercial return for it, it's the, you know it's that whole point of mutual incentivization. Yes, right. You want everyone to be. It's easier to have that conversation where, as if you've got someone who's just giving you a rights and they don't really care because there's, there's not much in it for them, it can be really hard to get them to activate and do do actually something that's meaningful. Um, so coming on then, let's move on then. So uh, so the, the 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 activities that, or let's say streams you've described. So you've got the the competitive side, the hardware side of things, the, the equipment, the yep. keyboards, etc. Um, the influencer streaming side, um, and then all right, you've got merchandise obviously on top of that. Or do you cut put that into the equipment? Yeah, yeah, so, so that's called consumer, consumer, consumer merch, products. Merchandise and products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, and is that the, the three main streams or is there anything I've missed off? Is there other stuff? Yeah, so, so I suppose there's, there's sort of traditional sports uh, sponsorship kind of stuff that you would see with any, any other uh, team. So um, shirt sponsorship, right? Um, official partners, um, those kind of that, that kind of thing. But in terms of business activities, so they're additionals into the, the competitive element, not yeah, the shirt sponsor goes into. Yeah, that's right. What, what we don't have, uh, we don't, what we don't have at the moment is, uh, say, what separates us from um, football, for example, is broadcast rights. Right. I think there are teams that are placing bets on the assumption that media rights income will eventually form a significant part of their um, of their um, incomes. Um, I suppose on the basis that when sort of Napster and those kind of things first started out, um, the the common the common assumption was, okay, no one's going to pay for uh, music ever again, effectively. And it took Apple and Spotify to come in and and, understand, and actually talk about creating a convenience model that made it easy for people to pay for music and not have to go onto weird sites and get malware and all that sort of stuff. Like that, someone hasn't cracked that code yet. Yeah, right? yeah. That's really interesting though because that's about, uh, about capital, isn't it? Like that, like Apple had the money to do it and the influence to do it because of the iPhone. Right. Uh, Spotify had the again the capital behind it to be again to be able to actually make a loss for an X period of time to order to make a profit. It's whether or not, yeah. Amazon's obviously got Twitch. Yes. Uh, who knows if that makes any money or not yet? I well, I mean, it's not, I mean, yeah, but I mean, again, if if Netflix can spend fifteen billion on content, right, each year, and it can pay, you know, Dave Chappelle reportedly, you know, sixty million for three specials, then then paying Ninja, who is a who is a prominent streamer, who has, who is delivering that kind of audience on a day-to-day -day level and is speaking to, a particularly an attractive demographic from a from a from a commercial standpoint, that looks like a bargain. Whatever yeah. it is, that you're yeah, yeah. I, I, it's interesting though. I don't know. Again, that's something to look into. I don't know that the the 
I've got no, I'm going to speak about stuff. Here we go. Break my own rules. Speak about stuff I've got no idea about. Uh, however, one thing I do know is Netflix from, from I went to a, an event and I give them a shout out because I was invo- that's where I got the information from, from DLA. Piper did a, a media and sports event and they had, uh, they were talking about the economic model of Netflix and, and how the banks are liaised with them. And whilst I can't go into detail of exactly what was discussed, the general f- the theme was that uh, for some of the people there that, that they were sort of breaking the model slightly because they could uh, guarantee funding rather than people being paid afterwards. So the, the model is slightly different. However, um, who knows whether that's a bubble or not, because you know, obviously Amazon are trying to do their thing. And so there's a lot of assumptions being made because uh, Netflix don't actually give the, as far as I'm aware, listen to the Joe Rogan podcast at least, <laughs> they don't give details on who's watching. Right. On who's viewing, right? So they've got, there's a bit of opaqueness around their model still. So again, I'm not sure if that is the thing. It'd be really interesting to see how this all converges in three, four, five, ten years' time. Yeah, you put your, you've got your transparency hat on there, mate, again, about data. But I think that yeah, kind just of. Just because everyone's making loads of plays in the background in sport, yeah, yeah, data yeah. is the play, right? So I'm obsessed with it at the moment because if private equity is coming in, they're coming in for a reason because they want significant returns. They see value there, see commercial returns. But who's right and who's got the, the you know, we talked about this in terms of the esports. Yes. The numbers, you know, someone, well, yeah, got to be careful what people tell you in private and what they say publicly. But, but, but various people have told me that a lot of the reported numbers, and I've gone into this in some detail before, like eight websites deep trying to find out whether or not the numbers floated around about how much the esports market is worth or a particular team is worth yeah. or, or a publication is worth uh, is actually true. And often this doesn't appear to be, uh, let's say, wholly accurate. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too sort of philosophical about it. It, it, it is what people are willing to pay for it. At the moment, people are willing to pay uh, good money, right? And we've seen that in our Series A um, fundraising round uh, completed last year. Um, there is strong commercial interest by very sensible people in this sector. And I think part of the, I wouldn't say the misunderstanding about esports, but as a, there's a there's a dismissiveness, I think, with regards to the nature of 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 what it is that we are doing here. I mean, f- fundamentally, yes, it is young people playing games, and and you can treat that as something which is serious or not. But there's no doubt the video game market is a a, a hugely important industry for the for, you know we're sitting here in London uh, sure, for the UK as a abs- whole, absolutely. Right? And and the, and the amount of money that's being generated by games, they, these are entertainment events. So should it be any surprise that there is a competitive scene in them? and that people are interested to watch it. If you look at why people watch people play games on Twitch or um, whatever platform, it's bastardy, it's engagement, it's entertainment. Like, all the things that people have enjoyed watching sport for through the years, these are all present in eSport, but with the added layer that you can interact... Because the players come from a digital world, they're native in that that world, you can engage with them in a way that you just simply cannot with, with... that's an inverted cost, traditional sports people. traditionally, and now again, that's right. changing again, right? Right, right, right. So, 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 what Netflix is to people of, I'm going to go and say our generation, Sean, and you're a little bit younger than me. Uh, what Netflix is to us again is is just too passive for the for the, for the for the for the consumers that are coming through now, and their expectation of engagement in terms of how they engage services, how they interact with their with. This with stars is at a completely different level to ours. I, I, I don't again. I don't. I don't want to get too highfalutin about it. But I was. I was talking about this with a law firm the other day. How people consume services now is in terms of uh, let's say B two C, so Deliveroo and Uber and uh, all these other kind of uh, sharing services. That is how they're going to consume professional services going forward. We have to look at how the kids are 
are consuming media as an indicator to, for, to how media is going to go in the future. And this level of engagement that eSports stars have and the, and the level of, of, of this, actually this nexus of kind of sport and influence that these guys have positioned themselves at, that's the future of media and that's fundamentally what well, people we, are backing. We, we know, we've talked about this in terms of law and sport, this is even something that we constantly have to look at because how people are consuming, distributing, sharing, you know, and the lack of respect for intellectual property, and we had a conversation yeah. about that earlier, yeah. is, is, a, is a real issue. So either people step up and deal with it or we all have to evolve. Um, one of the things I found surprising when I went to uh, League of Legends final in Paris, mm. uh, which was an awesome experience, was two things. The production quality was amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And I thought, they, they've come from it from that perspective first. How yes. do you make a great production? And obviously, we've got the competitive side and the, the, the sort of interaction in the game sort of, and the fan experience. But really, how do we make sure that when people come to see this, it's a real spectacle? I mean, I'm blown away. It was absolutely fantastic. And I've been to a lot of sports events. I've been to you know, pretty much most sports events. Uh, it was the best I've been to, I think, for in terms of sound quality in stadia. Right. Because they bring their own, apparently they bring their own sound quality. Because again, you've got techies right. who are obsessed with it. And they're like, hey, we need to make sure the sound's really good. And you can right. actually hear the announcers really clearly. Right. I mean, mate, like really attention to detail. Loved that. But the other thing I was observing, again, it was in, unfortunately it was all in French and I don't speak French. So, so, so I was kind of a little bit lost. I got the rough gist of when people cheered, something happened. Yeah. Um, so I was looking at what the interactions were and, I was, and they sold out in, I think, in five minutes, the tickets. And what they were saying is that people come to the events, the arena, to catch up with people that are from all over the world who they've been chatting to, a bit like in sports or yep. people who come to the events actually meet in person and say, hey, we conversed over That is the only parallel though. <laughs> yeah, 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 that is the only parallel. But my thought, I thought it was really interesting though because there was such a community a atmosphere there yep. and they were saying that's the whole point. Like I was saying, why not? You're sure you might have a better experience if you were watching it at home, if you're into the streaming. They said, but it was the fact you actually get to meet in person and people still like that side of things. And then the other thing was really interesting. So it's three things, not two. The other thing that, and maybe you've thought about this, was the um, what I call um, the call and response element of it. Yeah. That they conditioned people throughout the game to do certain, so, so I would imagine online, to do certain things. So when they turned up in stadium, they went, can we do this? Everyone did it. Yeah. Something you just don't see again in really in sport. You see like maybe a fan starts off a chant or something like that, or maybe they play an announcement. But they literally, the, the, if the commentator said something, they did it instantly. It was fascinating to watch. I was like, wow, they've conditioned the fans to really buy into the culture of that game? Yeah, well, I would say, well, it's great that you had that experience. And I, I think, again, I would challenge anybody who is skeptical about the world of eSports e and, and what it sort of means for, or the impact it's gonna have on our culture, n to go to that kind of event and not come away completely convinced of the, of the, of the power of it, really. Um, I did actually on that point, sorry, and I, I, I promised myself I wouldn't interrupt you, but I've done it like eight times already, so sorry about this. Um, this is how normally how our conversations yeah, exactly. go, it right? Is, it is. You're patient, I interrupt you. Sorry, 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 <laughs> listeners. But the, uh, um, uh, the, the element that I get with the difference that, as I understand it, was the control that Riot have got in particular they can control that much better than I thought that's I can see why that's an attractive from the franchise perspective well they haven't got franchise sorry their partnership um, model that they've got uh, for the leagues that, that that makes so much sense because as an investor you can go oh this is really tight really controlled we can you know have a lot of control of it as you were saying with say say Counter-Strike uh, the risk profile is a bit higher yeah 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 I mean look again 
there's a lot of smart. I, I like I like the right guys, and there's a lot of smart people in that organisation. They're very passionate about the game yeah, and the are, commu yeah. and the community, and and that passion comes through in what they do. And I think again, if you feel passionate about something, that you're prepared to put in that extra layer of quality, you've experienced it, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, lot like a lot, lot but of there's no right so it's on that though so there's no right model right? so I'm, like I'm saying about because my own experience but we've also done stuff with esl guys and i understand that though again these other organizations it's not to be disparaging of these other organizations no, no, not at all, not it's at all. just just what i've experienced but again I, I know that i believe the founders of esl were gamers they're passionate about it they were trying to drive they were like bedroom gamers before yeah you know and they're trying to drive it forward so it seems like that's that type of uh how would you say um character is 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 very typical of people who are involved in these organisations in esports. Yeah, this happens from an investor's well, I would say outside anyway, the investor standpoint. They seem like Riot seem to be a safer bet because all those controls they've got in place. Well, yeah, I mean, look, ESO, ESO will be fine. Um, of course, yeah. I think that kind of look, look to, to the to the point. Lots of lots of points to draw out there. I think um, authenticity is a, is a is an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean. I think there's lots of parallels between esports and something like uh, skating, right? Where you have the people who are involved in that pastime, right, are define themselves partly by their sort of the counter countercultural value of what it is that they're doing, right? They are they are they are placing themselves out of what constitutes sort of the traditional way of doing things. If you go back to the roots of of that sport. Um, the moment it starts to go mainstream, you have brands that attach themselves to it um, and that come out of that community. Not going to sort of, I mean, uh, it, it, in the minds of listeners, they will say to themselves, if they think skating and they think of particular brands, there's going to be particular brands that they go to, right? And Fnatic will be one of those brands for, for, for esports. I think, but as we start to broaden the base of this game, we start to tackle the thing. So it's the UNICEF uh, um, partnership. We tackle the things that stop people being part of the scene, but may prevent people from enjoying what it is that we love doing and that we 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 love we love talking about. The the base the base broadens, and that can be difficult for people who were originally in and of that scene, right? Um, I come at that from a place of positivity to say we love doing this kind of thing. How about you try it, and you maybe you might love it as well. That's a better way to to tackle it rather than kind of we're going to beat all the authenticity out of it with kind of corporatizing it, the whole thing, packaging it, and selling it. Be there's, a, there's a better way to do it, isn't it? There was always going to be a you know there's there's you can either uh, be forceful and get it done, or you can do it in a way that is actually um, you know taken into consideration. People can understand and appreciate that if it's going to be sustainable over a long time. Right, the, 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 that is the approach: is to take a more um, you know, broader overview of it and say, right, for for so other people can enjoy it like I enjoyed it. We right. need to recognise this, otherwise, if we don't get hold of it, it will become bastardised. Yeah, know, and it will be something. It will move way. It will get way worse. Right, it will move way away from what we wanted it to be. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so, so I think careful that careful curation, building building on that. Building on the the qualities that the uh, and the passion that the original sort of product has, and just trying to bring more people into the scene to make it fun. So, you know, mobile gaming in emerging markets is a good example of that. Even if I think even in a year ago, if you'd said if you're playing games on a mobile, are you in inverted commas a gamer, right? There would have been definitely a significant part of the scene that would have said, well, no, the only the only true gaming is PC gaming. So even if you're on a console, you're sort of you know, you know all that sort of stuff. What that fails to recognise is that. Not everyone can afford a you know a four grand PC specialist gaming rig like those like wonderful wonderful if you can but the reality is most people the bulk of people worldwide 
are playing games on mobile, whether that's Candy Crush or it's PUBG, right? And they're enjoying and, 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 and delivering on that experience. You're now seeing competitive gaming scenes within mobile, and that's the future of gaming, right? So we have to broaden the base in that way. So I saw yesterday, not sure if it's true, A14 chip or something. Apple's been working on an A14 chip. If that comes out, it's going to be equivalent of a MacBook Pro on the phone. Right, so this so is... is a, that, which is right crazy. So, so again, that original kind of goal of all this kind of stuff, I said the original goal of social media, bearing in mind that gaming and social media are to an extent in competition, like my kids game online with their friends from other countries because we've lived in another country and they are not online through a social media platform and they're online through a game, right? Um, as they start to, you know, as they have, as they get phones and they get a bit older and they do all that sort of stuff, they're going to continue that process on, on, online, but they'll be doing it on a mobile and that just broadens the whole thing out. But in terms of production values, I think that's interesting. I'd say that, that esports probably has music to thank for that, right? I mean, again, I was in uh, sort of major event promotion from 2011 to uh, 19. This is when you were at Flash. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we, we experienced that, that change in production values as artists started to reconfigure away from, or re reconfigure towards a world in which they weren't going to get paid for their recorded work. So you saw production values come up because if you are a Taylor Swift and you're making, you know, ninety percent plus of your revenues from touring, you want people. Taylor Swift's in town. Last time the show was incredible. I've got to go again, right? It's a Beyonce thing. I remember when Beyonce did one of her um, live shows. I think it was either on the BB. I can't remember what channel it was on, and everyone was just blown away. Like she was the first one, like major major artist that I remember that. That that's hit a diff just a different level. People were just absolutely shocked uh, at the quality of of, of the, the production, right? The production, the number, pure number of people it was like a, a stage show. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I saw Rolling Stones in Prague in two thousand three, right? And it was kind of this because I, I was living there at the time, and this kind of in epic stage show, like quarter of a million checks, just going absolutely bananas for uh, Rolling Stones. And then we did them again in uh, Abu Dhabi two thousand and fourteen, sort of closed the closed the loop. <laughs> but that kind of um, yeah, so it's no longer enough to just turn up in the city, play the album that you've just released. You know, thanks very much. Everyone's, you know, all that sort of stuff, and, and go. You, you have to put on a show. And I think people's expectations of what they're going to get for their entertainment spend have increased accordingly, and, that, and that's a good thing. On the engagement side, right, esports has been very, very low. Look, apart from the, the, the rig, as you were saying, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I think is interesting in terms of diversity and inclusion. Point. Yes, uh, no, I fully agree. Um, but how do we... Anyway, that, that, I'll just leave we'll it there. Leave it there for another <laughs> point. Um, uh, the general production cost of like the YouTubers, the Twitch, right, was super low. And yeah. It wasn't even that great quality. You know, they were in a room... Because I remember I was into film and, and stuff like that, and I was like, man, who's watching this type of production? So on the one end, though, the authenticity, the engagement was there... On, on the bottom end of it in terms of getting them the biggest number of people is about just do it yeah just do it and get people watching and talking it doesn't you don't even need to be polished in terms of how you're speaking you can swear you can yeah. stutter yeah. you can have long periods of silence you do all these things that break every traditional rule in broadcast yes right and then on the other side though you've got the top end so actually when you come and invest your money so i guess that's a free point the free point is that it doesn't matter because it's free and people are, you know that and on the other end though you're saying that once you actually spend your money, we expect it to, to ramp up as in to be noticeably different, to be really high quality, and that's what we appreciate. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, 
that's what you're getting into there is is what's the next step in streaming now these now these you know pardon me you're seeing as i said you know that the, the the ninjas and these kind of guys really start to 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 get the money in is the expectation of will there then be tiering within let's say twi the twitch celebrity world right the the, the or the streamer world where you have much higher production values, much higher sort of quality of production, um, and effectively then it becomes not an engage, not just an engagement platform, but a, but an entertainment product. I mean, I think being one of the really interesting things about being on that on the, I cannot say that I'm in the influencer world, but certainly we, uh, we have celebrities in the in the in the team who 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 firmly are. The pressure that comes to perform in that world is is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So that that degree of access that the fans are, are desiring, right, comes with it comes at a price. Who's, who's the um? This is uh, I, I can see him, PewDiePie. Yeah, he was talking about this uh, the other day. I don't judge, but I didn't have much time, and I, I, I had some time to kill, and he came up on my. I was watching what's trending, yeah. and he did a whole thing about you know it's exhausting for him. I think he's moving to Japan where he's not as famous, right? Because he said he loves doing his YouTube videos, loves doing the commentary, loves doing a bit on you know games and what his reviews are of them. But he just found it exhausting everywhere he goes. He just wasn't ready for that level of profile, right? He said people just randomly coming up to him, going or taking photos from afar without asking and all that. And he just said it's this actually quite you know off-putting and, and stressful for him, so he wants to move. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, got, I've got my views on that, but I think the. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, but my point is, yeah, the point is, there's one of those things where people don't know what it is to actually do it, so it looks very attractive. Yes, but but it's a bit like I was listening to um, with a fantastic, only a short on uh, the BBC with Mbappe, um, and he was saying yeah. how he cried right, like when he first went to Monaco, he was crying for the first year away from his family. He really didn't know what was actually going to be expected of him and required, and it was quite, that's difficult, and you know. Coming back to the whole UNICEF point, right? There's a huge risk there, right? Because it only takes one of those to go terribly wrong, one of those celebrities to go have a real breakdown, or you know, you know, something bad is go wrong, and it can really, one obviously harm the individual, which is the most important. You know, we want to prevent that, but then harm the whole sector. Yes, and and and, it, and it, I suppose one of the great things about working for a you know, legendary, storied, well-resourced team like Fnatic is that we have the ability to tackle these things which are knotty is this the biggest challenge in esports so coming into esports mm. from from the entertainment e business um and we haven't really talked about your career so apologies for this but there's just so much to talk about in esports um coming into it what is the biggest challenge as a lawyer in-house in a team obviously this is the big one of the biggest teams but coming in-house into the team what was the challenge both internally in the organization and then more broadly in the market uh biggest challenge um i think it's so we just I'm, I'm going to approach that tangentially and I'll, I promise I'll come back to it. So <laughs> so we just we did one of the things I, I did when uh, I came in was to was to rebuild the uh, team of external advisors that support Fnatic. And as part of that process, I asked um, pitch participants to tell me what they could do for us that no one else could do. So what what is your what's the value of in, of engaging you? And what was really interesting was was actually, uh, I mean, th there were there were some advisors who did a ph phenomenal job of that, and now they work with us. But there was there were others who, f who, talked in generic terms, right? 
you know, we're, we're an international firm and we really understand esports and we are, you know, one team worldwide and, and that kind of stuff. Real I, I describe it as kind of platitudinous or just generic stuff. And it's not enough. And, and, it, and it really, focusing on value, focusing on what it is that we are actually here to do as in-house lawyers is a really interesting question. And I don't think enough lawyers think hard enough about, about that piece. So let's take a step back then. Yeah. So you said you did that activity. Yes. What sparked that process? Because that's the interesting part for me. That you've come in ex from outside, from the entertainment industry. You've come in and you said, for what sparked you to go, right, I need to look up, rather than go, hey, we've got a bunch of uh, legal advisors. What was the, the, the moment that you thought, actually, I need to review this and just see what everyone's doing? Well, I think the... Or who's providing the most value? Right. So there have been reactive... So one of the things about growing businesses is they often act reactively, Right. So, so, so I suppose a fast growth business, right? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. You have um, talented amateurs working across multiple uh, business lines, right? It just needs to happen. You just throw, throw whoever's got a spare pair of hands, right? You're, you're making the tea now. You're negotiating with the players now. You're, you know, what I mean, now, now you're, you know what I mean? There's, there's much less specialism in those teams because it's smaller groups. They're working hard. Just need to make it happen. And um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And again, as well, we, it's a necessity, in fact, at, right. that, at that point, because they can't afford, they can't afford, they can't afford the specialism. Bring, yeah. Absolutely right, absolutely right. And, and, and again, as I discussed earlier on, it is worth bearing in mind how far Fnatic has come without, with, the, with, with talented amateurs doing this kind of stuff. Like, so, so again, this draws absolute parallels, though, with the sports market. Yes. Media rights go up, suddenly, particularly in football. Suddenly, all these people in the clubs have been asked to do all these different things. Got more money, more is at stake, and they they haven't necessarily had previously. They've just gone from, and I can't say which club it was, but one of the clubs that got promoted came to our, our football law conference, yeah. and they were saying, "Hey, we don't even have an internal legal team. Right, we're, we're just doing everything." You know, I'm, I can't remember. I don't want to go into it too much. Anyway, they're saying like, I'm a non-lawyer essentially, and I'm basically covering the legal function. Right. So, th so there've been a lot of re reactive use um, of, of firms, and what that meant in practice was. Uh, the last three years, 87 invoices, 20 different firms, right? Just a, this real spread of stuff. Now, we are, got, we, we are in the, as a, as a back office, we are trying to bring in a level of maturity into this, into this organization, um, reach out to other esports team and, and, try and, and try and help lift the sector and, 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 and to try to re-envision this as a, super long-term business, right? Rather than just, okay, we made it another year through, let's see what happens next year kind of thing. Really start to bring in a much longer-term perspective and look at value uh, in, in, the, in the long term. And that requires our law firm partners to have exactly the same approach, right? So we want partners on the journey. We want to, people to understand where it is that we are going, what it is that we're trying to achieve. And you can't do that acting reactively. So, so and this is... It's probably a bit geeky for some people, but something I'm very interested in. Right? Bring it on. Bring it on, right. So, um, being sort of a, a, I'll say, I'll say a legal specialist, right, in terms of how law firms bill and, and, and work with clients. And I speak to a lot of general counsels all over the place, right, who talk to me about how their providers work, but also work with, obviously, and we work as an organisation, all of the providers. Yeah. Do you think, given it was that reactive period, right, that actually, um, as an organisation, 
right? And you're saying not that some of the providers weren't necessarily thinking that way and you were looking, that actually the conversation that you guys were having as an organization with people, so making it like, yeah, with uh, how many different providers, right? That, that, that actually, because of the, the culture of the business and the time of being reactive, that you conditioned your providers to almost behave that way. They didn't stop and think. They were just like, oh, they need this? Okay, I'll do that for them. And then this, I'll do that for them. They never actually thought, oh, maybe there's this longer term opportunity, right? Was that part of the issue? Because I can see this, say, for example, in football. Again, I'll come back to football because we just want to know better. That a lot of people have told me in house that, that law firms have come to them and said, hey, I want, I can do this for you. Okay, I think that's the one thing they need. And actually, there are a whole lot of other legal issues that they need help with, but never came up in the conversation. Right? Just like, oh, can you do this for me? Can you look at our data protection policy? Yep, no, no problem. And that was it rather than having this, hey, maybe we could do a do more for you, maybe we can build a long-term strategy. Is that a fair assessment or not? Um, I think, I think, right, general councils have a, have a, have a job, have a duty, I would say, to sort of, sorry, I was trying to pick a different word other than juicy. Part of the job is trying to processify the legal department, right? What that means is understanding your workflow and how external counsel connect in with that. You have to understand that before you can start approaching how you structure a relationship with law firms. So, so if you respond reactively to the business, that means that you can only use law firms reactively, right? If, if however, you shape your response to the business and you and you do the education piece and you do the process work and all that kind of stuff, then you can start to talk to law firms more effectively, right? And, and what you don't get then is a kind of... A, so, so I suppose what, I, what I'm saying is, how much is it the law firm's responsibility to think about um, what a business really needs and then express that, right, versus the, I suppose, the, the, the business's obligation to get its house in order and approach law firms as a on a partnership level rather than a service provider level so, so this that's will, the challenge and this and so we talk about this you have to be a sophisticated i say this as i say we on this side is me waxing about this you have to be a sophisticated purchaser of legal services to understand how to instruct a law firm effectively in my opinion legal advisors more broadly effectively because the opaqueness of how people charge right understanding how much work something uh, particularly when it's an intellectual issue how yeah. much it actually takes and what that value is right and in organizations that are not used to working with law firms or particularly if they haven't had people who've been in private practice themselves for a, for long periods of time that can be difficult for them to get hold of now you're saying this and what you said which I, which i love was to, and correct me if i've got this wrong the job of a general counsel in an organization is to you know, para, you know, paraphrase it, processify, is that what you said? Yeah, I probably made that yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, that's a great word. It's, it could be like Spotify, processify, right? The um, um, the legal function, right? So that the, the most things happen and tick over without having to be a huge drain on resources and there's this sta essentially the reason being is there's a standardization, right? You can be assured that a contract looks like this, you can be assured that risk is managed effectively, right? So therefore your value can then be better placed and better used right your or your your the value you can bring to the organization can be deployed more broadly in terms of this longer term strategy or you know working on some of the different things is that correct is that yeah yeah, yeah you're not you're not here so uh, this this question of what comprises value for in-house counsel is 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 become a vexed issue right because you 
and, and this, I know this is painting a very broad term, so so apologies to any private practice lawyers who who are listening. But I think the there is still a very strong relationship between hours and value in the minds of many lawyers. What we're trying to do, I think, I think private, again, I'll talk to you about these dis distinctions between in-house and private practice. I think that is one of the key ones: is moving away from something is good in terms of how much hours I've spent on it and, and that inefficiency. Because the reality is, this is the whole more with less question and all this kind of st stuff. Your job is to become more process efficient and you're offering, there's an interesting bit of, I'm bouncing around a little bit here, sorry, but there's an interesting bit of research around what, how, what lawyers think their clients want and what clients actually want. Um, and what that research says is that very often what lawyers think their clients want is FaceTime, right? I want you to sit with me and, and basically we'll talk through this issue and I'll get a really deep understanding of it and so on. That's not what clients want. That's not what clients want. And again, we saw this very often in the, in the, in the sort of panel process that we went through. So we would express what it was that we were after. I'd like to think in pretty clear terms. So, you know, people go, what we want to do is we just want to come sit with you, have a day with you to really understand your business. I mean, it's in the nice possible way. We're trying to move things here. Like we don't are have time. Right. We, we, I like, have time. I, I have I have time if that is going if that time is going to repay. But if it is just like tell me about esports, which again is a lot a lot of it. Um, there are firms who um, pr pr profess an expertise in esports who, who 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 don't necessarily have it are looking to get it through working through organisations like ours. Which again, us understanding that dynamic is also important to driving value. But I think that that to me. We're trying to get to a result, and fundamentally, what you're selling is predictability. So, what we have, so one of the things that I did in the previous, in my previous role, because we had so many agreements to do, because we were tackling major events. So, this is your, you know, FIFA Club World Cup or AFC Asian Cup. I mean, October 2017, we were doing as a team of uh, three, um, you know, 300 contracts a month, right? You you cannot, you cannot do, you cannot do that. Unless your process flow is extremely like optimized, and we and we and it took us eighteen months to get it to that. But we saw that on the horizon there was a wall of water and it was coming towards the island, and we had to respond right. And the answer is not more hours, and the answer is not more spend on external counsel. And once you move away from thinking those are the only two levers you can pull, then the, then you start thinking more creatively. I would say that is the obligation that you have as a member of a management team. Because my marketing colleagues are not just saying, do you know what, we're just going to go and spend 100 grand on Facebook ads. We don't know how much money it's going to return in terms of, right? That, that, that was the way that it used to happen in marketing. People would just spend and it would just be about, oh, we're building the brand. But now you have like ROAS and these kind of things, metrics to, to determine yeah, that. Gutted, that I missed that wave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been great. Early 90s. Um, so, so, when people started to be able to directly track, and of course now in the digital world, you can track it so accurately, right? Is it any surprise that, again, I talked earlier on about, look at what the rest of commerce is doing and how people interact with services, and then understand how that's gonna impact um, how we deliver services. And of course the expectation is, you will be able to provide with predictability, um, over the way in which you spend money, over the way in which, uh, over the results that you get, you have to processify it. So, 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 so but this is, this is the reason why I wanted to labour this point was you've got years and years of experience now, right? So that's not you coming in fresh in house, right? That you're saying that this environment shapes you, right? So, so when you come in, this is what I wanted to get to, right? So you came in 
what was the uh, and I think you've now described it what was the motivation coming in going right fast growth business I've been here before where I can see that there could be lots of things any moment in time there could be a huge surge in work I need to make sure that we've got the foundations in place to be able to cope and deal with this right and then that sparked those conversations and I thought that 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 in itself is just 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 very interesting. I'm sure again, there's lots of people who are in sports organisations, in media organisations, and a whole bunch yeah. of other, like, yeah. like across the world who are listening to this. And as you said, you know, you're out in the Middle East at the time. People use law in sport, you know, all over the place, like yeah. China, yeah. Japan. Yeah. You know, even if English isn't their first language, they use it as a resource or they listen to the podcast. I think they can take hopefully a bit like we were talking about when Lord Dyson said. You know, I focus on doing an outstanding job, yeah. right? And everything that I do, I try. I worry about my reputation. And we were discussing this earlier, saying that was a, such a distilled thought. It was absolutely intentional what he said, and I came away from it. It hit me quite hard. I remember thinking, "Wow!" Note to self, right? Everything else is a distraction. Do the most outstanding job you can do. On the like when you're saying as an experienced general counsel, saying that coming in and try to process. Pro, put processes in place it's not just something you're saying it's something you're doing right because it alleviates and gives you the bandwidth to be able to work better as a, as you were saying on the leadership of the organization i think it i think the days where you got specialist treatment right as a lawyer in a business you know i don't even think that has that, that really ever happened like, I, well, I, I think I, I think there was a I get really nervous about, I don't want to say nervous, but uncomfortable with this kind of, um, particularly after the financial crisis, there was a lot of kind of like, ah, oh, well, we told you so kind of stuff from um, so from some general counsel and the whole uh, moral compass uh, trusted advisor piece kind of came back in. Um, I remember being at a conference a few years ago uh, where there was a conversation about um, how to influence in the C-suite, and, the, and there was almost an assumption. So the executive suite for sorry, right, to, yeah, yeah, just, sorry, just, sorry, yeah, yeah. Just because some of the junior people, might right, not exactly. So, 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 let's say influencing a kind of CEO, CF, uh, chief financial officer, and so on level, um, and there was an unwritten or unstated assumption all of that that, of course, those people would want to listen to what you were, to, you know, there to say because you were a lawyer and therefore somehow uniquely insightful, um, like. One of the things that it, I suppose inspired me to to get to focus a lot more on things like employee engagement and and management and that sort of stuff and and had the benefit of going to to INSEAD to to sort of look at some of those things in a bit more detail. One of the things that inspired me to do that stuff was a number of unhappy lawyers who I encountered at events. I, I encounter a lot. I, by the yeah. way, I will get. The, I'm super fortunate because in the sector we're in, there's a lot of happy lawyers because they yeah. get to do the work they they like. But underpinning that, I also deal with a lot of people who. Are very unhappy about the business, basically the business practices. How, to, like again, how they 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 know now, particularly the younger generation, they know there's a conflict between this chargeable hour still that's still very pervasive in the market that you just you, globally, yes, and then doing a great job for people that they like who are their clients. Yes, yes, and I think that, and it, but and I don't want to say, I mean, I, I don't go home and cry about it, but I, I find it very depressing in the sense that, uh, again, you touched on this um, in that fantastic podcast with with Lord Dyson, we, you know. There are so many, generally speaking, lawyers are extremely capable, right? Extremely motivated, right? They are people who get things done. And you're seeing now, I mean, that's a, the, the sort of latest trend, I suppose, is lawyers moving out of general counsel into COO, right? Because you've worked across, and that, and that for me is inevitable because you, you work it all the way across the business. 
on neutral terms, right? So you're not coming at it from, I'm representing the commercial function and this is our, you know, I, I've got the team behind me and I've got to have their back kind of thing. You work across the whole piece, very long-term value oriented, understand how to structure towards a target and all that sort of stuff. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, that, so we have all these capable people and they, they self-limit in that regard. And I think just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean that you, that you haven't got to abide by, let's say, common sense business practices. And one of those business practices is to get, is to think about the way in which you do what you do and, and not accept the constraints of, um, that, let's say, that your firm or your employer places upon you, right? Because once you do that, once you accept that the only way to deliver value is to put more hours into it and the only way to approach clients is to do so within a very stru structured business development um, sort of environment and so on, or oh, indeed, for putting it back to that pitch process, the only way to pitch is to send somebody like a 40-page... Because you're constrained, as you said, you're constrained by, right. by, by the form. Bring but enough, actually, the, sorry, on this point, the, 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 the people that I know who are most successful are the ones who are cool. Um, you know, they go rogue, essentially, right? They, they, will, they will go, right, I know this is the process, I appreciate it, guys, but I'm going to do something completely different and do my own way. <laughs> and it's not often, like, I have to say that I think there's a real shift in the market, and I think there are... Obviously, the bigger the organizations struggle generally to move as quickly because of the nature of the size, but particularly a lot of the boutique firms and uh, the smaller, you know, the, the smaller or the individual lawyers and stuff are able to just, I think they're listening. I think there is, you know, again, I think there are a bunch of really great people in the sector who are, who are desperately trying to do that. However, that, that culture is a strong culture in the legal market, isn't it? It, def it definitely is. And look, you know, profits and law firms are not necessarily going down, <laughs> right? So somebody's saying something right, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, that, that's the... The kind of, you know, the Daniel Suskin kind of. Uh, there's only going to be super firms, and everyone else is going to get disrupted, kind of thing. That hasn't that hasn't manifested, right? Maybe it will in the future. I think actually, some of the firms that we now are working with and enjoy working with have re have, have responded very positively to that. And I was on. I got a call the other day from sort of one of the challenger firms, and they were. And one of my questions to them was, "Well, look." the kind of discrete service offering that you guys are, so, you know, you boot up people over here and you can just throw them into your kind of process mix and that kind of thing. Um, why is that any different from what I'm getting from the law, firm, the law firms that we very carefully curated our partnership relationship with? Like, this is not a one, I want, this is not a one-way thing. Like, I, in fact, I've had calls with a couple of our panel firms over the last week about how we will be coming to their offices to, to talk to their staff and train their staff and get involved in training, bring colour to it, uh, talk about esports, talk about our processes, all that sort of stuff, how we how we sort of roll out, how we interact with our clients internally, because that's also part of the package, right? It can't be, if you're going to say, we need partners on this journey and you want to really understand each other, you, you have to commit to that. Yeah, absolutely. Like both, both sides of that. Do you know because what I mean? otherwise they can't give you the best advice if you're being, again, being distant and not really telling them what's going on. They can't possibly get the, the best overview. I like to think this is all going to be where we see, and I think the successful people over time that all the international law firms I work with, what I call the rainmakers, and it, uh, you know, we've talked about this at length, because of the functions I used to do in credit yeah. control. Yeah, 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 yeah of course, of course. I always had to deal with these very, and been known for being able to deal with difficult characters. I often had to deal with some of these difficult people who didn't follow the processes of law firms. And what was really interesting, I thought about it uh, particularly last year for some reason, and I thought, actually, well, these people, they because they weren't conforming, there was a risk there. So that was the challenge, right? But the clients loved them. 
they were the right. biggest billers of the firms. Like every firm I went to, there was this, this character who just didn't follow the processes in terms of putting every you know every single item down. They put the general how I worked on this for you here, and the clients they were very transparent with the clients about how they were going to approach that, and the clients loved them for it. And in fact, they didn't really query any of their fees either, which is you know, I'm talking these are multi-million pound invoices for law firms is quite mm. quite something, right? <laughs> you know, generally they were just knocking them out left right and center basically and the contract great you did a fantastic job you understood whether it was a property transaction whether it was a litigation matter probably you know litigation would have to be a little bit more granular with the information because obviously people review the costs uh funds setting up funds same thing they were like no we know you do great we agreed this is roughly the fee we were happy to pay you there you go off you go yeah and it seems like it's very interesting that the natural thing was in the law firms to go right we have to make sure everyone conforms to this process really that wasn't the big point if you see what I mean the point was like I forget there's a value point yeah I mean uh, look not everyone's um, that kind of Steve Jobs archetype right you know, you know, you know what I mean and I think that kind of um, but that's okay and again I think to go back to those kind of if you're sitting in a law firm now or you're in a in-house role where you're where you're not happy that doesn't have to be the, your only route out. Like I am not legally brilliant, so I can't. So therefore, I can't afford to be unique within my firm or whatever it may be. Um, that's not the takeaway, and I don't think that's what anyone's suggesting. I, I do think understanding what it is that you can bring and, and focusing on that is is really the answer. So, so, so one of the things I was going to point out, actually, so say saying this is an environment again, you have to recognise that if you're in house, sorry, in private practice, the constraints of your business. Uh, one of the things that I find very interesting as one of the, the pervasive thoughts in the legal market is you can act for everyone. We need to get this market share and the amount of firms that we've dealt with, and I mean hundreds of firms now, who are, oh, we're going to move into sports law. Oh, great, are you? Awesome, right? Like, don't get me wrong, are you putting serious money behind it? It doesn't even do a lot of money, but as in, are you actually backing this partner or associate or trainee for a prolonged period, right? Or are they going to have no money to do anything, no time to do anything, and they just talk a good game? And <clears throat> one of the points is, if you recognise that you don't actually have that backing, if you don't have that support, you go, fine, I'll do pro bono work. Oh, fine, I couldn't really act for you anyway and provide you with the value so it was going to damage the relationship. Maybe there's someone else actually out there who actually, again, taking you guys as an example, who are at an earlier stage, who actually just need the, the piece-by-piece advice. And we can do that really, really well for them. Right, and then they, and at an appropriate time, then maybe they can revisit. You know, what I'm saying is they've got their own constraints that they need to recognise, and therefore they, as you were saying, not everyone, not everyone's in a position where they they can have that conversation. Right, not everyone's going to get permission to do a pitch deck that isn't, despite them knowing it, that isn't a 40-page document because internally the marketing director or the marketing partner, whoever, has told them no. This is how all of our decks go out. Yeah, but but again, I would say that is um, a failure by the oh a challenge on the part of the marketing function within law firms to be able to define their value. I agree. My point was that the individual in those firms, right, the point they have to make the most out of the opportunity. And so that, that, that if you're in the firm like that, there's no way you're going you're gonna to win, right, a type of a pitch to someone like yourself or an organisation like you because, you know, without going, I said, completely breaking away from the system because you're going to get, a lot of, and I've seen it personally, like, you know, having, yeah, having yeah, done yeah. this when I was doing the, the, the um, was a, a marketing executive for a law firm. Saw the, the, you know, it was one of those situations where people would get punished, even if they did something well, to get punished for breaking the rules. Right. So in that situation, the win is, right, with the constraints that I've got internally, 
who can I service who are, who actually um, aren't looking for something that I, I literally just can't provide. Yeah, well, look, there's a strong, I mean, to that point, there's a strong correlation between tox- toxicity and work environments and, and adherence to rules, mm. right? Um, it, there's a there's a Harvard Business Review article about that, which is which is really interesting in terms of employee engagement. But send me that, sorry. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, I think that kind of um, again, I, I go back to the point about law, about law firms understanding what their value is, right? The f- the firms who joined our panel were not in inverted commas esports firms, right? And there were firms who came to us with a what you might describe as an esports pedigree, and they work for the teams or they work for players, the rep players, um, and and they came to us on the it was almost like they put that on the middle of the table and just and just went there you go look we we understand you right? and we are an esports business but we are a business right and and assuming that all we want is people who understand esports is a, is the first mistake right and we had and we actually saw this in terms of um pitches where people would bring in somebody from their team um who played league of legends and they put that person up front and that person would talk about League of Legends and we'd be like, okay, this is great. This is how this is, how is this helping our business? Right. So, and I can see this in, in, again, this is again about business, again, sophistication of the market. So again, you're a smaller business. First of all, you want to make sure people understand what you're doing, right? Initially, you're like, oh, okay, you get us, right? And so people, that would work for uh, maybe five years ago for the, the team, right? That may be the thing that actually resonates because there wasn't that many people taking that approach but now you've matured you said okay now, now actually the the functions that we need help with or the issues that we need help with are actually get more sophisticated and actually we need people with experience of helping businesses grow right right and, and the challenges that we're faced with that and again we see this in the sports context like we even see it to be fair this is the same thing where people try to be a sports lawyer or right. probably, exactly. probably get exactly. sport. Right. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I love sport great <laughs> how's that how's that gonna help you when you need to look at a contract or you know you're involved in an employment dispute or a cashier yeah I mean look I love the um and again we talked earlier about authenticity and Having that passion for what it is that we do is, is an interesting dynamic in the business, actually, because we, we let's say you know, there was a FIFA tournament in, um, although FIFA is not, I'd say, our, our primary game, it's an important game in esports, and obviously we've made the investment in, in, our, in our player roster um, and so on. There's a tournament in Atlanta on the weekend, and um, our guys who are out there supporting that tournament are you know, pushing out you know, information about what's happening on our Slack and... Our CEO felt like there wasn't enough engagement with that because you know look, everyone needs to be passionate about esports. So we said, and, and, that, and that was a fair comment. We also had a conversation about that. Is go, okay, I want people to be passionate about esports. I also want people to be really focused on growing this business. Okay, and sometimes that Venn diagram is not a circle, right? There might be a bit of an overlap in the mid, in the middle, um, and 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 that partnership journey we talked about earlier on, where we end up in that, and having people who are up there on the deck of the ship scanning for icebergs with us. And looking in blind spots for us is much more important than whether or not you know who Reckless is or Uzi is or who the legal agents and all that sort of stuff. That's more important. If you if you have that passion as well, I love to hear it, but it's not going to be the the primary de- determinant. Like you know, if someone comes to us, they have an in, have a relationship with the brand, um, they they love what it is that we do. That's wonderful. Like uh, that that is that is a it makes things easier. You want a brand? It's great if you can have brand advocates. Of course, you right, right, like yeah, you yeah. want. But, but, everybody likes people who are passionate about stuff, and, that, and, and that's and that's great. But fundamentally, what we're about is growing this business in a really structured, predictable, or say for us anyway, predictable way, 
managing value in the long term and that if you come to with that partnership mindset that's that's really the most important thing you talked we talked about this after the um uh the league of legends final we had a discussion about the teams and i was saying it's it really interesting to me to see one of the winners was really introverted and was kind of like look i'm here to play the game what did you think like you know did this yeah one guy was super charismatic and everyone loved and they roared and another guy was actually charismatic in his own way obviously he's very very successful like one of the top players and he basically said yeah what would you think of the game oh the other team didn't play very well <laughs> and that was it yeah and 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 i thought wow that creates a challenge right when you've got these people who you know really do just want to play the game and you know then maybe their personality type is more on the, that sort of introverted yeah. maybe they don't have no so much so much of the social skills they say and um, that's not really what they want right they're just doing it as a vehicle to play their game and that's uh, uh can present uh, some sort of challenges but my point was you, you've got that diversity of characters on the team that makes the team right and makes the brand and probably what you're saying is in terms of that partnership or internally as well if you're hiring you want like any good team you want a mix of people with different talents Absolutely, absolutely right. And I think again that that's really been interesting to see how. So this this kind of as we go up the maturity curve as a business, and you start to bring in, I, I describe as I mean our CFO is pretty hardcore uh, in terms of his approach to running that thing, and he needs to be right. He's he's bringing in a, a degree of discipline that hasn't been there previously. So you have to send a message, and a lot of that personal branding in an organisation like this with lots of big characters is really important. Mm. Like again, also it's not polar opposed, right? So, so, so again, you can still have all of that passion and everything else at the right place at the right time. It's stuff that you know, I empathise with it yeah. as, as a small, like, you know, a small but growing business owner, right? Yes. Uh, with a lean team, it's something that I have spent way too much time worrying and concerning about. And obviously, I can control the pace uh, at which we grow to, to manage that effectively. But in, a, in, a, in an organisation like yours, you've either got to hit it hard and put your foot to the gas and go, right? Otherwise, someone else will take your place. Right, but I think that kind of, again, one of the, I suppose one of the things that, I, that really I wasn't aware of would ever be a thing when I came into, when I moved in-house in 2011 um, to now is that importance of understanding who, as, as general counsel, and this is, start, I can understand if someone would roll their eyes listening to this, but fundamentally, you're more than just the job, right? You represent something. And, and, and historically, this has been the kind of moral compass kind of thing. I don't, I don't entirely reject that characterization, but in a young entrepreneurial business, what you can bring in terms of, let's say, your calmness, your again, predictability, all these kind of things, they're all on brand, right? So in a very reactive business, in a very creative business, you want, like, I, I, I'm not here to put a framework on top of that. I'm here to help the business grow from underneath with better uh, practices, platforms, all that sort of stuff. We're here to grow from underneath, to protect value, to copper bottom this, right? To look for things that the business might not be aware of that are coming down the pipe and help to manage them. The UNICEF safeguarding thing is a good example of that. That, that, is, that works on multiple levels. We have a relationship with UNICEF, which is, a, I mean, I've really enjoyed dealing with the team there yeah, i think they're great we work with them as well and yeah brilliant, like, brilliant like bunch. Th those guys again super passionate about what they do authentically passionate about protecting children trying to make the world a better place all that sort of stuff L love that part of it i also have the fact that we're going to make them a bunch of money in terms of the uh, fundraising their engagement with us in relation to safeguarding to one of your sort of passion projects we have 
a degree, they have been so generous in terms of the way in which they've shared that information with us. And ultimately, the, the net result of that is a better protected uh, sort of uh, youth base, our ability to talk about this from a place of authenticity, because we're going through this in the same way that every other esports team will have to go through it, right? We're taking something that either people didn't want to talk about or didn't feel comfortable talking about or it just wasn't on their radar. And, and, we're, and we're processing that through the filter of uh, entrepreneurial, young business, right, that's, that's tackling these things and not in a sort of like a, again, we touched on this quote because ethics in sport is, a, is a, in the news at the moment, not tackling this in a kind of like a high-handed, uh, you know, this is the fanatic way kind of thing to use a, uh, to, 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 to refer to one of the ways in which one of the teams involved in the ethics scandal is, 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 has kind of held themselves out. What we're saying is we want to grow the base of people that are interested in in esports, we, we we understand this is something we need to tackle as a business. Thankfully, we have the resource and the capability to do it, so we're going to go ahead and, yeah. and do it. Uh, I, I think it's great, and uh, you know, I said we've had the the real pleasure of working with uh, the guys at Unisys have, uh, particularly funny enough, through world players. Brendan Schwab introduced me to Liz Twyford, uh, uh, UNICEF and the, and the team there, and they do loads of stuff behind the scenes about facilitation, knowledge sharing, and everything else, which which I had no idea that they did until a few years ago, which is fantastic, and we welcome always to, to our conferences and try and help facilitate that as well. And I think that approach, and this is why I'm excited about this partnership, and I've been excited about the discussions we've had, is that I don't think that safeguarding is an, an, or safeguarding or, or protecting the welfare of individuals is actually a very uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people to have. It is. Because, because we just want to say, hey, that's not on my watch, doesn't happen. I'm not realizing that it's not about that. It's about, you know, there could be a risk, right? And any activity or any sport, and we've now seen this, you know, just pick a sport, pick anywhere in the world, right? And they've been exposed for having that blind spot, right? It makes, and this is one of the things, you know, when I got into it, when esports was initially flagged to me, yeah, as a growing area, and I'm not much of a sports fan as I used to be. Not much of the most thing I look at it, try and say, what's the infrastructure? What's going on? How does the law? My own passion is law, and have people, most people, having access to it, right? Fundamentally, to protect their rights. Yeah. That's the big driver of everything that we do. That when you look at, it, and I looked at esports, I was like, whoa, okay, you have got people broadcasting to millions of kids. Right, without the regulations in place that you'd have on TV, right? And then I looked at some of the behaviours within the games where they're encouraging, for example, betting, trading, yep. those type of things. I thought, whoa, okay, now who's investing into these things? Now, it's not to say that those are bad actors trying to do bad things. It's just saying that we recognise that could be an attractive opportunity, a bit like, you know, with people with predatory behaviour um, in football, where they were like, oh, great, you know, years ago, People just basically giving their, their kids, and they do this across different sports, sort of in gymnastics. And again, I don't know, entrusting their kids with us. Brilliant. And no one's checking that, that, you know, right. that we have one on one contact time. And in esports, with people being able to communicate to these individuals, it doesn't very. You're not doing it for the nice people, right? You're not doing it for the well behaved people. You're doing it for the people who see it as, an, as a great opportunity to exploit. And I mean that not just in the sexual way, I mean in financial, yes. uh, you know, controlling, you know, yes. all these different characteristics. So naturally, it, I think, and the win is, sorry, I think, na I think naturally it's great, or it should be great that you're thinking that way. Really do. I think I can't praise you guys enough for this. I think it's awesome that you're thinking that way, but oh, I think the better point of it it's not only are you thinking that way you recognize that it's not something you can grandstand on yes right because then it doesn't achieve the uh, the, the end outcome 
And I say that because I know we've had quite in-depth discussions about this. The win is to get the whole sector moving in that direction. Yes, uh, and I think the hard yards. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the hard yards of policy implementation uh, are, are where the are where the action is, right? So, I think there've been. We could have got the same public and perhaps fundraising impact just by taking a policy off the shelf, saying, announcing that we've got a safeguarding policy, partnering with UNICEF, doing the stream, right? So you've got, you know, England star, England stars, there will be further further players involved, uh, online uh, gaming stars playing together like that. Would, you know, we, if, we, if we were only brand focused, then we would have, that's the way we could have approached it, let's say. Um, I'm, we're trying to tackle this in a, in a, in an effective way and that does mean and I, i've had this in the past so one of the things i uh, was responsible for in my role was business continuity standards which requires you looking at so this is iso or ncma in uh, the uae um, standards um, and those require you thinking about things that are very unlikely to happen right so you know uh, unfortunately what happens if there is a terrorist incident around uh, an event what happens if there is um you know, we, there's a team flying over for the uh, Club World Cup at, on a plane and the plane crashes. Um, what happens if somebody boycotts the event, um, which was floated as a possibility when the UAE and, the, and Qatar, um, amongst other countries, fell out? All these things you have to consider. And I think it's very... Uh, one of the challenges there was, look, we're just doing you know, insert sport here kind of thing. We're just doing this event. You know, this is all we're here to do is just entertain people or play the game. Like it's, like we don't have to think about these kind of things. You can get very complacent as well. You can get super complacent. And again, this, this, I'm, I'm very conscious of these kind of things. Again, I mean, what we talked about this, what are the takeaways from the Saracens uh, sort of issue that's going on at the moment. And we talked about an article that I'd read yesterday. The only, the main failure in relation, and the, the, the person who wrote this article was arguing, the main failure in relation to ethics in sport is to assume that there are any ethics in sport, that it's anything other than a naked commercial enterprise. Even if you look at it on those terms alone, right, tackling these things makes complete business sense, Absolutely. right? If you just, if we, if we only looked at it from that perspective, I'd almost feel more comfortable arguing it from that perspective, right? There will be a safeguarding failure in esports at some stage, right? For the reasons that you've identified, so talking about gymnastics and this kind of thing, the opportunity is there. And even if it's something just like there is a there is an inappropriate interaction between somebody on behalf of a team or a get or, or a gamer and somebody and one of their followers online. Yeah. Right. It doesn't have to be now either, as we've seen with all the Me Too stuff. Right, right, right. right, right. Exactly. It could be five, ten years later. Well, I'm sure that exactly. And as as, as, as that context changes, I would say that's um, absolutely right. It's an obviously what we what we assume is appropriate online once the dynamics of all this stuff get get resolved. Right. Um, I think that's absolutely right. So again, I would say, just coming at it from a purely commercial standpoint, if you start to move and start to have this conversation as an organization, that's a much better place to be than sticking your fingers in your ears about it and just going, that's something that we just don't need to deal with. Either because, either because I, trust my, I trust my guys and therefore it's gonna be fine, and it generally is guys, I, I trust my guys and they're gonna be fine, or it's just an unwillingness to get into the weeds of it. Coming back to we keep talking about value, I know we probably sound like we probably bore people to death. Well, value, value, value. But but genuinely, again, if you truly understand the value of what you do, and this is the one thing I find surprising in the sports sector that it's taken so long to move that way, right? And partly because the the hierarchical nature of it, right? And it hasn't necessarily in the in the, at least in the administration hasn't necessarily been a meritocracy. 
the, the you'd think looking after the participants would be their number one priority because that is where the value is, right? Where you know the fans are, the participants, the players, etc. Right? And it would seem to me, you know, again, if the objectivity, true objectivity, was there, even if you were looking at it from the commercial, purely commercial, you go, hey, recognize, protect the asset. Right. And the asset are the participants, the fans. So I think it's great that you're having that conversation. I'm thinking that we've been going for quite a while, but the uh, I would love that you know, we didn't even really talk about your career. There's so much to talk about. I think we probably need to do a part two in terms of other issues in esports uh, and and your career. But I guess I always like to do this at the end of a podcast. Is ask multiple questions when I say <laughs> it's just one more question, but it is just one more question. If you were going to give advice to either an in-house or private practice lawyer, right, in order to, to, to be the most successful they can be, right, wherever they're in their career, what would it be? It can be multiple things. Dear me. The, the idea that I would, I would kind of give advice to anywhere in their career, my mind seems <laughs> to have been pretty um, uh, sort of in the right place at the right time. I think... The things that have been, I'll give two, two answers to that. The first, the first thing is the things that have most positively affected my career, if you like, have not been the things that objectively you would think would have done so. So the job at Flash came as a result of a know-how project I did with somebody that was that nobody in the business wanted to touch. I did it with a, uh, a lawyer who, it turned out, knew somebody and who was looking for somebody and that person's recommendation because his relationship with this other person was was so strong. A conversation that I never knew had happened until years and years later resulted in me getting the role. And I could have, if I'd sat down with a piece of paper and said, right, I'm gonna work my way into this job, um, that would have not been one of the items of, of that I would have sort of undertaken. And I think it's to that sort of like Lord Dyson point. I remember one of the things that really stuck with me years and years ago, when I was uh, qualified into litigation, and I was relatively newly qualified, and um, young lawyer, trainee came through, who is now a partner at, um, at an international firm, and we had a data room that basically needed to be organized, and it, it just kind of gone through multiple trainees of not wanting to touch it, and this guy basically disappeared for three weeks, and then sort of came back and said, you know, come down to the room, and it was just, it was immaculate, right? And that had, that was the thing that got him then hired by Norton Rose, and then he went on to um, this other firm. And, it's, and surprise, surprise, has been extremely successful because he he did his best job in all circumstances. This was a job that nobody wanted to do, and it was dirty, and it was and all that sort of because it was it was literally like these are dusty files, right? <laughs> and he got down there and he rolled his sleeves up and got into it. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, right? So this is to Lord Dyson's point about just doing the best job you can every time. This this know-how project, nobody wanted to touch it. I did a, I'm you know satisfied with the job that I did with it. it. Influenced this person to then go ahead and recommend me, and that's what got me that job. So, I think bringing it in all circumstances is a is is definitely um, a, a good recommendation. The second thing is, what there's a there's a book by a guy called Marshall Goldsmith called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and understanding that if you that when you're successful because of what you need to understand the difference between when you're successful because of what you do and when you're successful in spite of what you do. And if you're a young associate or you're a trainee and you keep on doing things the way that your boss wants you to do them, um, within reason, um, at some point that is going to stymie 
your career potentially, unless that person that you're working for is somebody that really inspires you and you feel that you can learn from from a long period of time, at some point you have to start doing things your own way. And that doesn't mean like going rogue on day one, you know, congratulations to you, here's your training contract, you go down to the Law Society and get your piece of paper and your photo and then you just start freestyling. That's not what we're talking about here. We're just understanding that at some point you need to make the switch away from being somebody who's there to deliver hours on behalf and put into somebody else's pot, right? And somebody who has their own practice, has their own style, has their own relationships, has their own engagement and so on. And if you are working for somebody who you, you're, you're not going to get that opportunity, then, you know, respect your own value because it's very likely that you, as I said earlier on, you're very hardworking, you're probably very personable, you're certainly very smart. I know there's lots of other people. You look around the firm that you're working in and there might be lots of other people who fit that. That's not normal. Just to be clear about this, that, you know, that is not normal. And you will work if you go in-house or you, as your career expands with lots of other people from lots of other walks of life who will inspire you. There is another way. And if you feel that in yourself, then go with it. Right. That, 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 that's my, that will be my main piece of uh, advice. I think if you're in-house, the challenge is slightly different. Like you're, you're, a, you're a business person, and just as you are in a law firm, uh, but you're a, you, you're, your obligation to align with, with business norms, I think, is probably slightly a little bit more acute. There, your goal is to find a time to build things the way that you want to do them. So if you're in a very reactive role, if you're buried in the middle of the... Um, super tanker and you don't feel all you're doing all that's happening is kind of you know the instructions are coming down from the bridge like like that kind of it comes out of the little canisters <laughs> and you open it up like contract required and then you just start shoveling coal into the engine and get it done like if you find yourself in that situation what you need to do is cover enough time to to, to, to build away from that and I think sometimes people can find themselves being just so buried in the detail of what it is that you've got to do if you keep on doing that again, what got you here won't get you there. If you keep on doing that approach, if you keep on interacting in a reactive way with the business, you're going to get the same result. So your your one goal is to find the time in your day to understand what it is that you're supposed to be doing there, to define that value and, and start to live that. Because if you can be emblematic of you know, risk management, protecting the business, a calm place where people can come and bring answers or bring their questions to you because I mean again all the things being equal the sooner you find out about something the easier it is to manage it so what are you doing to make yourself approachable how are you carving out time in your day to to allow people to come in and say there's something that I need to talk to you about do you, have you got five minutes every important conversation I've ever had has started out with a phrase have you got a minute yeah. right do you know what I mean so 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 create that time so again private practice in-house, what got you here won't get you there. Think about what it is you want to achieve and is what you're doing going to get you to that goal? Um, and even if it's just in my, you know, in my heart, I get up each day and I feel like, oh, Jesus, I've got to go in again and work for this person who doesn't inspire me. Again, we don't all have to love what it is that we do, right? I think that is an inappropriate standard, but we have to take meaning from what it is that we do. We have to feel like we're coming in each day and moving the needle forward. And again, if you're a lawyer and you listen to this, or even if you're not a lawyer and listen to this, if you if you don't feel like when you get up each day, your capabilities are being maximised, you've got to do something about that because because that's not a sustainable thing in the long term. Something will happen that will break you out of that, and it's better for you to be in charge of it than than not. So, yeah, f understand that value and understand your own value because really, again, the likelihood is it is that you're probably much better than you think you are, right? And the and the things that you can bring and the capabilities that you can bring are are 
may be underserved if you don't really have a clear idea of what they are. That is awesome. That is fa absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, we, it's a joy to speak to you always anyway. I love, you know, you know, we shoot a breeze a lot on in terms of various issues you probably can tell from if you're still listening to the podcast right yeah, now. Beard, beard tips. <laughs> you're doing much better than mine. Yeah, skinny jeans, <laughs> all, the, whole, the whole thing. The yeah. whole thing. Shoreditch trendy. Premium knitwear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're helping me yeah, get into the, 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 the trendy Shoreditch scene. No, but um, Cecilia, thank you for that. I think we probably do need to do a part two or three in terms of we didn't really touch on sort of wider issues apart from obviously the safeguard and stuff in esports. Thanks for explaining uh, the business sharing your insights uh you know when we come back and maybe do another one about your career as well awesome thanks so much no problem at all sean Well, sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. But remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on all the social platforms that you can imagine. You know, get an update from on our weekly email by going to lawinsport.com and registering for an account and subscribing to our weekly email. And other than that, thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Hope you have a wonderful day.